Hey, leaders, today's episode is brought to you by Rusty George's new book, A Simple Path to Following Jesus. It's a practical resource to disciple your people on the basic questions about the Christian faith. You can order your copies today at amazon.com or simply go to pastorrustygeorge.com forward slash shop. Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now your hosts, Gary Newhoff and David Kinneman. Welcome to Church Pulse Weekly. Carrie Newhoff here. And today I'm joined by Brooke Hempel from Barna. Brooke, really good to have you. Thanks. Great to be here today, Carrie. Yeah, so we are talking about building a multi-ethnic church. So excited to have Derwin Gray back with us on Church Pulse Weekly. He joined us uh, in the first year of this podcast as we talked about things as they were unfolding in the summer of 2020. But this is an opportunity for us to really look at the unfolding story and to do a little bit more of a deep dive. And Barna has just uh, finished up a whole lot of research called Beyond Diversity. What, what does that even mean? What is the angle? Like, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. What do you mean beyond diversity? Yeah, the research actually started out looking at kind of the dynamics in multi-ethnic versus monoracial churches. And then as we grew in our, our understanding, we realized there were different perceptions of what the goals of diversity were and how we would kind of measure our, our achievement towards that or, or how well we were doing with that. Um, And so what we learned through really kind of two years of research um, was the church needs to be looking beyond just a uh, numerical or statistical measure of diversity. We really need to be looking at what that experience is like for our churchgoers of every racial background and being aware of how to be intentional about our culture. And so beyond diversity says, look, diversity is one step. You know, we can we can desire and pursue something that mirrors the kingdom of God, which is that we have many colors and faces and ethnic groups represented. But in order for us to live in community, we've got to go beyond just that numerical uh, closeness. It's got to be more about our culture as well. Okay, great. Can you uh, walk us through a couple of the findings you want to highlight, Brooke? Yeah, I figured it'd be useful to talk about leadership um, in this particular uh, instance, given Derwin's experience leading a multi-ethnic church. Um, So I want to share some data on that. So we asked people, and these are practicing Christians, so those involved in a church, um, what can churches do today to improve racial dynamics in our country? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a really interesting one because we thought, you know, here we are, like, these are people in the pews. What do they think is the first step? So their answer is most, like, top of the list, most commonly were welcoming people of all races and ethnicities in our church. So that's kind of the, the ground level, like, we have to start there. Eight out of 10 people across every racial group said this is the, the starting place. We actually need our churches to be a model. But then their next answer is really varied according to their own backgrounds, right? So people who um, have a more racially diverse background, um, most, mostly uh, Black practicing Christians and Hispanic practicing Christians, would say we actually need to teach about ethnicity and race in our churches in order for people to kind of get on the same page. Interestingly, we saw different answers um, from our white practicing Christians who were more likely to say, we need to help people become Christians. So there's Mm. a disconnect there on on their belief about about, um, where people are with regard to their relationship with Jesus. 
But the other really um, common answer was we need to put people of color in leadership positions. And at least a third of people of color in churches said that that's an important component to pursuing healthy racial dynamics in our country. Mm. So that was really interesting. That was not called out by white practicing Christians, um, that that leadership component was already baked into uh, whether or not your church was going to have a kind of a healthy culture. So that was like our statistical data. Um, we also did a lot of interviews with leaders in churches and focus groups of people in uh, monoracial and multi-ethnic churches. And we saw pretty clearly and consistently that there were some um, leaders of color in churches who were acting in a very different way um, that made their church have a very healthy, um, more unified sort of culture. And what we saw were um, the things that they were doing where they were seeking input from and even deferring to non-white leaders. So they not only Mm -hmm. had them on their leadership team, but they would, they would wait, they would hold their opinion. They would defer to others to say, hey, tell me what you think about this, um, including even if they were younger than them, right? Mm-hmm. So you might have a 60-year-old pastor, white pastor, who's got a bunch of younger uh, people of color on the leadership team, and that person would wait and say, tell me guys, what do you think? You know, tell me what your um, experiences are here. What, we, what do you think about this decision? Um, and then just living in significant humility, and we would hear that from both the congregants mm. and the leaders, that that humility as a leader, you're going to make mistakes in this, right? Because you've got people with so much diversity of opinions and experiences, but these leaders would consistently say, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I said the wrong thing or I did the wrong thing, and let's see if we can fix it. So that humility as a leader was really essential to having that healthy culture in their church. I am so glad you mentioned that, Brooke, because I know 90% of the trouble I get into in my life is due to a lack of humility on all issues. And it's amazing what that solves, right? When Because you feel as a leader, you feel the pressure that you got to have all the answers, you got to say it right, you got to have your tone right. And I'm not going to get it right all the time. I'm just not. But that that willingness to take the low place, that willingness to defer I think is so, so, so important. And the church should lead the way in that. You know, one of the scriptures that's been floating through my mind a lot in the last few weeks is, but he wanted to justify himself. And that explains so much of leadership, doesn't it? It's like, I want to justify myself. I want to justify my decisions. I want to justify what I did yesterday or five years from now or what I plan to do tomorrow and and humility Oh, that's a that's a great place to to dwell on with this. Anything else, or uh, we tell us a little bit about uh, the report that's coming out, maybe? Yeah, so the report's coming out in April. Um, it, it's a study that we did in collaboration with Dr. Michael Emerson, who a lot of people know from his book Divided by Fate. Um, we also have Dr. Glenn Bracy. They're co-writing this book. That's a follow-up to our research. Um, so they're going to be sharing some of their experiences and insights as well. They've both done a lot of their own sociological research over time. Um, But they really pointed us in this direction of understanding kind of the roots of what's important to the different groups when we're talking about racial issues. So let me explain what I mean by that. They they really pointed us to let's dig into some of what we'll call these structural or systemic issues. And in academia, that's a really comfortable topic. Hmm. In the church world, sometimes that's quite divisive. People get really nervous about what do we mean by that? Um, what are we trying to solve by that? Are we trying to, you know, navigate the systems of the world in a certain way? The reality is we live in this world. And so we dug into what are the lived experiences of people in our churches when it comes to racism? What did they see mm. it as, right? 
So we asked them, this was intended to be a, I'm going to force you to, to come up with an answer here. Um, do you think that our, our system or our problems of racism today, um, do you think it's mostly about racial discrimination that's built into our society and our institutions? Or is it mostly about individuals' own beliefs and preferences that causes them to pe- treat people of other races differently or poorly? Um, so this is the hugest gap. This was the largest gap in our whole hmm. study on people's perceptions. And so leaders need to think, okay, if I'm looking out at a, at a diverse congregation, I need to know that the people in my pews have these experiences and viewpoints on what racial issues affect them or what types of racial issues affect them. So we've got our white practicing Christians, 61% of them say it's an individual prejudice issue. Um, And there were some who said, I don't even know what what it is. So, I mean, this is the vast majority who say this is an individual prejudice problem. It's it's just one-on-one, right? We've got our black practicing Christians, 67% say, no, this is systemic. So it's almost flipped, almost flipped. Exactly. It's like reverse, it, completely reverse. So we experience ongoing challenges trying to just navigate the world, right? Trying to move forward in our lives. And that's the biggest problem. Um, and then Hispanic and Asian Christians kind of fall in different spots in the middle, in between those two. But interestingly, so we've got this huge divide based on our racial uh, background and our own experiences, life experiences. And then interestingly, you also have a huge divide by generation. So you've got Gen Z and millennials predominantly saying it's systemic, over half say that. And then you've got Gen X and boomers predominantly saying it's individual, again, over half saying that. So even like shifting in the generations, you've got this line, we were hypothesizing maybe if you're a boomer and you grew up during the civil rights era, you kind of feel like, hey, we dealt with that. Like we Mm. put in place, you know, the Voter Rights Act and we put in place all sorts of new legal systems to protect. And so maybe we feel like that's done. Um, but for whatever reason, our younger generations are much more aware of kind of the broader structural challenges, and they want the church to get involved in that. Well, Brooke, that's a big deal. And uh, we're going to bring in Derwin Gray in just a minute or two. But you can go, if you're interested as a leader, to barna.com slash beyond diversity to pre-order the new Barna report. It's called Beyond Diversity. And as regular listeners know, if you use the little coupon code ChurchPulse15, you will get a discount. So that's ChurchPulse15 on checkout. Make sure you use that. This has been so helpful, Brooke. Thank you so much. And Dr. Derwin Gray, come on in. Derwin is a former NFL player and has been pastor of Transformation Church since January 2010. He is releasing his new book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, A Gospel Vision of Grace, Love, and Reconciliation in a Divided World, comes out April 2021. And uh, Derwin, wow, a lot of data there. But why don't we start here? What, What really impacted you when you heard the stats? Was there anything that really surprised you or you're like, yes, that's exactly it? What, what would you say? Yeah, I would say that Brooke and her research with Dr. Emerson and the other sociologists are, are spot on and, mm-hmm. um, and building a multi-ethnic church. Um, I actually write about it in chapter one is I talk about this idea of understanding that if you start with more of a secular ideology with Jesus on top of it, or if you start with a pharisaical, uh, uh, uber conservative fundamentalist perspective, you're trying to accomplish God's kingdom and God's design and man's power and in man's time. Mm. 
And so over the years, as I have watched this movement and been a part of it, um, the number one question I get is this, well, how do you do it? And that is a very pragmatic Western individualistic perspective. And Carrie, you know this, as a leader, it's not first and foremost how you do what you do, it's who you are. Yes. That informs how you do what you do. And so what I want to do in the subtitle of the book says, says this, a gospel vision of love, grace, and reconciliation in a divided world. And so, yes, for uh, my white brothers and sisters, oftentimes there's this perspective that sin is only individualistic. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yes. Often for people of color who have experienced injustice, we tend to lean towards, well, no, it's it's sy- systemic. Whereas the Bible says it's actually both. We know that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So outside of Christ, we're jacked up. And then when we do come to Christ, holiness or spirit brought about transformation has to take place. But we also know from Ephesians 6, 12, that our war, our battles, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and dark powers, that there are dark powers in play and those affect systems. So let me give you an example, right? Um, Growing up as a kid, I used my right hand to write, and I still do. And most of the students were right-handed in elementary school. And the desks were made for right-handed human beings. It was no problem for us. Some of my friends, a few of them were left-handed, and they had to write very awkwardly, but they still were able to write. So for people like me who were right-handed, we had right privilege (laughs) because the desks were made for us. It doesn't mean we didn't work hard. It just meant the desk was made for us. And people who were left-handed had to adjust to us. Well, when you look at the United States of America, it was built primarily for white people. Now, if we followed the Constitution, liberty and justice for all, we wouldn't have this problem, right? But then it would be the new heavens and new earth. And so we know systemically there are dark powers. We know individually there are people with dark hearts. And so the issue is not, is it individualistic? Is it systemic? It is both. And it requires all of God's people to unleash the gospel and understanding this. But Oftentimes in uh, white majority culture, evangelicalism, the topic of race is not discussed. They have more of a colorblind mentality. Well, let's just be colorblind. The only people who say let's be colorblind are people who've never been disadvantaged because of their color. Hmm. And so God doesn't want us to be colorblind. God wants us to be color blessed. Our ethnicities, our cultures are going with us into eternity in the new heavens, new earth. That's why there's every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping the king together. So therefore, therefore, what we have to learn to do is ask ourselves, why do white brothers and sisters, particularly in America, get so uptight about talking about race, talking about 
systemic injustice. And I have a few ideas. Number one, I think there's been this melding into, okay, this is our country Hmm. and we built it. And so what I want to say is, well, number one, a country does not define Christians regardless of ethnicity. Our identity is in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to Jesus first and foremost. Secondly, my great, 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 great grandfather's name was Moses Davis. He was born in Virginia and he fought in the civil war against the Confederacy. He was in the fourth regiment of the colored cavalry. He fought for the American flag, which symbolizes liberty and justice for all. The Confederacy did not want to be American. The Confederacy Mm. wanted to keep people enslaved. And so patriotism runs in this brown body that I have, which happens to be 23% European. My mom is as light as you guys are. (laughs) And so my point is this, no, this is all of our nation. And it broke my heart to see a Confederate flag in the U.S. Capitol in the insurrection. I mean, that is an enemy's flag. You didn't want to be a part of the United States. So, so, so first of all, your identity is not in America. Second of all, this isn't just white folks' country. This is all of our country. And then third of all, when people of color bring up systemic injustice, it doesn't mean that we don't love America. We love America. For goodness sakes, we built it for free. It does not mean that we don't love America. It does not mean that we want white people to feel guilty. You shouldn't. As a pastor with a church that's over 50% white, my goal is not for anybody to feel guilty. There's no condemnation in Christ, but the goal is for us to look back and to collectively as Christians mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. We look back and and go, oh my gosh, women couldn't vote in this country until 1920. Oh my gosh, Native Americans. Oh my gosh, slavery. Okay, that is horrible. Let's lament. Let's pray and say, how do we lock arms, white arms, brown arms, black arms, yellow arms, all arms together in the Messiah and say, how do we create a more just, loving society? That'll never happen again on our watch. And so therefore, it goes to the aspect of leadership. Research shows that white Christians, when they think of integration or multi-ethnic, it's people of color coming to their churches. But what happens is, hey, you guys come bring your color, but leave your culture at the door. Hey, bring your color, bring your music, but you can't give theological reflection. You can't preach or teach. You can't be in positions of leadership. And when something goes down into society and culture, we're really not going to talk about it because if we do, then the white people are going to get mad. I cannot tell you how many of my white pastor friends who talked about George Floyd and who talked about uh, racism, how difficult their summer was. They had elders rebelling, mm-hmm. uh, people saying they're going to leave their church. What do you like woke now? And they say, pastor, what do I do? And, and so the first thing I do is I take a step back and I say, well, you have to understand if you haven't been teaching them this and all of a sudden you throw it on them, it's a bait and switch. 
Like they're not used to eating this food because you've never fed them. So part of it is kind of like your problem. Now, the good thing about God's grace, you can start now, but there is so much political ideology forming and shaping the, the church, whether it's on the progressive left or the fundamentalist right. And what we have to do is go back to the beauty of scripture. Carrie, in the opening, you talked about leadership, or maybe it was in the in the pre-talk, that the Pharisee said in to Christ in Luke 10, you know, hey, wanting to justify himself, mm -hmm. who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story about a good Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans at that point had been in a 700-year ethnic religious feud. And the Samaritan should have never been the hero of the story. And so Jesus in and of himself is showing, I come to redeem all people and all of us become the sons and daughters of Abraham, that the foot of the cross, it is equal. Now, we live in a society that's not equal, and that's where our brothers and sisters take gospel power and we leverage our lives that's called justice. Loving your neighbors, you love yourself is what justice looks like in the public square. But we have to tear down these political ideologies on the progressive left and the pharisaical fundamentalist right, because they're trying to hijack this message of J Jesus. Last year, when I marched in a Black Lives Matter movement, I was doing an interview and so, so, someone, someone says, well, why are you marching? I said, I'm marching because Jesus says, love God and love your neighbors. You love yourself. Like Dr. King marched before Black Lives Matter and the King of Kings had a dream before Dr. King had a, had a dream. And it was every nation, tribe and tongue worshiping him. So salvation is not separate from God building his family. He doesn't just rescue us so we can stay racist. He doesn't just rescue us so we can stay prejudiced. He rescues us individually to put us in this hot mess of a mosaic called the family of God. And so therefore, we have to move away from diversity being black people and minorities go to the white church because research shows that white Christians rarely ever go to churches where it's predominantly people of color to follow their leadership. Now, within that, that's an example of systemic injustice. It's like a fish that swims in water. And the fish doesn't know it swims in water because that's all it knows. And so for most majority culture people, it's like, well, of course we're supposed to lead. So what I'm proposing is like what we did, we, we planted a church and our, and our staff was multi-ethnic, multi-generational from the beginning. And here's why. Because it is a gospel innovation in Acts chapter 6. When the Aramaic Jewish widows were getting favoritism over the Hellenistic Jewish widows, which is filled with racial overtones. In the first century, the closer you were to Jerusalem, the more pure of a Jew you were. If you were a Hellenistic Jew, you took upon Greek culture. And so the Aramaic women were getting favoritism with the food. And what do, do the apostles say? I want you to select eight men that are full of faith, full of the spirit. And all those men had Greek names. Why? Representation matters. For example, Carrie, if I came to Canada and I started trying to lead, I wouldn't have a clue because I don't know about Canada. I would need your insights. I would need your understanding. 
right? And yeah. so what so what so what happens is diversity rooted in the Trinity of God Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, in that diversity is unity and innovation and beauty because other people can help us see things that our experience won't allow us to see. And the hard thing is this. When we say life is harder for some people, it goes against the American ideology of mm -hmm. you can be anything you want to be. A couple things. Number one, no, you can't. You can be everything God has created you to be. That's one. Two, think about telling a Native American in 17 or 1805, hey, you can be anything you want to be. Yeah. Or telling a slave, you can be anything you want to be. Or telling a poor white Irish immigrant, you can be anything you want to be. As a matter of fact, in the early 1900s, when Irish and Italian came to America, they weren't even considered white. It wasn't until later on that Irish and Italians became white for power base. Hmm. And so one thing that we've done as human beings is we have divided, we have separated, we've created classes and that is not only an individual preference for power, but there's also the demonic powers. But in the midst of that, we have to remember on that Good Friday when Jesus went to the garden and he prepared to go to the cross. And when he rose again, he defeated sin, death and evil. And racism is one of those sins. It is not outside of the periphery of a good God. But we have to be honest about our prejudices, myself included. God's grace and the scope of his goodness is big enough to heal us. But here's the thing that I'm wrestling with after nearly 20 years in this movement is this. Are we willing to obey the gospel? That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Am I willing to love my neighbor as I love myself? Which means this, I don't have to defend my place in society. I don't have to defend my culture. Um, because at the end of the day, when I said yes to Jesus, I became a part of a new family. He not only forgives our sins, but he gives us brothers and sisters with different colored skins. And we as teachers and preachers and leaders must be willing to lead the way, but you cannot plant or lead a multi-ethnic church unless you're living a multi-ethnic life. We'll be right back with Derwin Gray in just a moment, but we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Pastor Rusty George's new book, A Simple Path to Following Jesus. I know as a leader, you're probably always looking for materials to equip new believers in the church about their beliefs, and the questions aren't getting any easier. In his new book, A Simple Path to Following Jesus, Rusty George offers a practical resource to help you disciple your people. Uh, addressing the basic questions about the Christian faith. So this format is perfect for an easy Sunday handout for small groups, and you can get your copies in bulk for your church by going to amazon.com or go to pastorrustygeorge.com forward slash shop. And now back to our conversation with Derwin Gray. I think one of the challenges, Derwin, is that a lot of our churches, regardless of the skin color composition of the congregation, tend to be homogenous. In other words, and I'm thinking not particularly about race, I am thinking about um, economically, socially, culturally, right? So you can, you can have a certain level of diversity, 
But I think when it really, and I, I'm picking up on something you said earlier, which I think is, is worth at least double clicking on for a moment to see if there's anything there. But, you know, if all of your friends, first of all, have the same skin color, that's one thing. But there might be some diversity with skin color. But if they all drive the same cars, have the same kind of housing, um, wear the same clothes, listen to the same kind of music, is that true diversity? And when you talked about the first century church, my guess is that, you know, there are different smells coming from the kitchen in the first century church, right? If you got the real thing going on, you got the Greeks, you got Jews, they have different dietary practices. Uh, I think you go ahead today and you're going to be in some very, like I said this to Tony, my wife, just yesterday, I, I did some deliveries for our church as a volunteer. And I'm like, one of the things I'm grateful for, and we haven't got it all figured out, but like you can go from uh, someone who's living a very marginal life who feels welcome and included at our church and then someone who's, who's in a very different socioeconomic bracket. So I guess the question is, to what extent is social, cultural, and economic diversity part of that fabric as well? Yeah, and uh, Paul addresses this in Galatians 3. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, so that's ethnic. Our ethnicity is not obliterated. It is celebrated. He said, free or slave, that's dealing with economic. And then he says, male and female, that's saying that men and women are co-heirs in Christ. And then he goes on to say, you know, this is what the family of Abraham looks like, is that at the foot of the cross and out of that empty tomb comes this new ethnicity of people that are made up of all of them, social economic diversity and male, female appreciation and co-heirness in Christ. And the goal is not just having different colors in a room because a New York subway can have that. The goal is family and to mm. love each other and to support. Who's around other. your table? Yeah. yeah, and and I think one of the mistakes that the majority culture church has made in America is how do we get diverse? Let's check that off pragmatically. But yeah. it's not about how do we get diverse. It's about how do we love each other as brothers and sisters. And love is not sentimental. It is sacrificial. It is giving your life for, it is patience, it is kindness, it is stepping in the shoes of another person. It is treating them as though you are loving yourself. And think about this, the body of Christ on the cross is where sin goes to die. But in the resurrection, the body of Christ is where all of us go to live. So therefore, it's not merely about getting di di different colors together. It's about these different colors becoming a mosaic and being the body of Christ and loving each other across, as Paul says, ethnic, social, economic, and gender. Because in his day, the three big barriers, even to this day, there's some Jewish men who pray this prayer. Yahweh, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That happened back then. The Greeks following Socrates would pray, thank you for not making me a barbarian. A barbarian was anybody that didn't speak Greek. Thank you for not mm. making me a slave. Thank you for not making me a woman. And right in that time frame, the apostle Paul lays out that all those who've been baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. So our first birth ethnicity comes in second to our second birth ethnicity, which means we're all clothed in Christ. And when we're clothed in Christ, our ethnic backgrounds are celebrated, not obliterated. 
our social economic class becomes not work networking opportunities, but opportunities to love and learn. And then men and women are on equal footing in Christ. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what the family of God looks like. But Carrie, this, this takes a discipleship beyond excessive Western individualism that teaches me how to get over anxiety, how to get over stress for ways to make sure your kids don't smoke pot. You know, mm. we're, we're, we're so busy trying to use God and manipulate God through formulas instead of entering into the beautiful mystery of his story and his family. And Gen Z, they don't want nothing to do with this individualistic, um, consumeristic Jesus guy. That's why so many of them were marching in the streets because they want to be a part of something bigger. And I'm here to let them know that Jesus is the biggest of the big and he cares about injustice. As a matter of fact, his messianic mandate says, I came to preach the good news to the poor. I came to set the captives free. You know, I came to open the side of the blind. He he came to, pro, to, to, to proclaim the year of Jubilee, like God's kingdom cares about all of it. And it can be summarized in this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And mm. it's the Holy Spirit's power that does that. And so I wrote building a multi-ethnic church as a map, but also to give you practices. But my prayer at the end of the book that a person goes, oh my gosh, I love Jesus more, and I never knew the gospel was this big. Mm. As preachers, we are shortchanging God's people and those who are yet to be his people when we simply preach a Jesus who only forgives sins. Man, I'm so thankful that God forgave my sins, but he didn't forgive me of my sins so I could own slaves, so that I could look down upon immigrants, so that I could be mad at white folks. For the forgiveness of sins is the pathway to a new exodus of learning to love like him. And we've got to read the Bible afresh. Every time you see Jew or Gentile, circle it. And what you're going to find is a bunch of circles. And you're going to go, oh, my gosh. Because I've because I've been accused, well, Derwin, why do you preach about race so much? I go, because the Bible talks about race mm. so much. The Bible is a story of God trying to reunite the human race to himself and to each other across the various ethnicities within the human race. So what I say is this, not only do you get all the individualistic things, now you get a family of how to love each other. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. What happens when Jesus comes in conflict with your view of politics, whether if it's progressive left or fundamentalist conservative right? What do you do then? And sadly, in America, we have seen a lot of people uh, bow down to the false god of politics, and it has hurt the church mm -hmm. deeply. Yeah, um, there's a reckoning that's happening. 2020 was a very, very hard year in that respect for the church from a number of ideological perspectives where our theology was kind of shown to be political and ideological. Derwin, I want to I want to touch on uh, a little bit what you said and what Brooke talked about with the difference between systemic and individual. And I think one of the things that's happened over the last year for me in particular is I think my eyes have been opened, at least to some extent or a greater extent than in the past, to the systemic side of this. 
Uh, one of the definitions, I'm borrowing this from another context of culture, is people like us do things like this. That's a pretty good definition of culture. But if you look around, you think, no, anybody can get up. But you look around and all of a sudden everybody kind of looks like you. And I've also realized when I get pulled over by a police officer and uh, someone who doesn't look like me gets pulled over by a police officer, there's often a very different experience and very different anticipation of the experience. Uh, I generally do not fear for my life. I've never feared for my life when pulled over for speeding, et cetera. And I think it was it was shocking to me, and maybe I'm late on this, to realize, no, that's a radically different experience for a lot of people who are not white. Do you want to say a little bit more about systemic versus individualistic? Because that's something I'm really kind of sensitive to in a way that perhaps I hadn't been earlier in my life. Yeah, yeah. And and Carrie, what I would say too that is to making sure that we root this in Ephesians 6 12, that there are principalities, yeah, there are dark powers. So yeah. there there has never been a time in my life that there was not a fear of policemen. Wow. So in my community, um, it was normative to have bad experiences with policemen. Now, to be fair. They were in a rough, rough environment. And then to be fair, why was it that our Saudi town was primarily Latino and black? Well, when you look at the history of the way cities were formed in America, you had redlining, which meant banks could only give loans to people in certain areas of the city to protect white folks. Now, we have to keep that in context. And if you put people in a cage and treat them like animals, they may begin to act that way. So even now as I'm driving and our church has won awards from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department because of the work that we've done with police for years. Uh, We bought the police near our church, uh, a workout gym. We have great relationships with our policemen. Now, here's what we must begin to do. You can be pro-police and pro-police reform simultaneously. Mm. It's not either or. You don't choose people or police. It's you can choose for both. Like, I don't know about you, Carrie, but I want manipulative, bad pastors out of leadership or repentance. Yeah, I, I'm I'm there for that, Derwin. I'm joining you in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. And, and so with with police as well. So so let me give you a, 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 a two experiences is one is so uh, a few years ago, I was in Columbia, South Carolina, speaking at an FCA. That's about an hour from Charlotte. FCA is always late at night. So we're coming back home about 11 o'clock. Uh, two young guys who were on staff uh, that I was mentoring was there with me and my 15 year old son at the time. So we're driving and there's a policeman and we're going 57 on a 60. And Hmm. so we get on the side of him and he sees four minorities in the car late at night. So he slows down, gets behind us and he and he shines these huge white lights at us. And so for a mile, he's following us and he pulls us over. So as he pulls us over and I didn't drive, and this is what I said to him. So Puerto Rican kid, Black kid, me, and then my son, who's half white and half black. So he looks Puerto Rican, Polynesian, whatever. And and, and so this is is what I said. I said, all right, driver, get your license and insurance. Put it on the dashboard by the steering wheel. Put your hands on the steering wheel. I said to to my son, and I said in a calm voice, I said, son, 
get your hands, put it on the driver's back seat. Anything he says, yes, sir, no, sir, don't move fast, don't reach in your wallet, everybody. So when he gets to the car, all of our hands are in a place where they don't move. And uh, we asked him why he stopped us. And he says, well, you were speeding. And it was like, well, can we see the radar gun? No. So he runs the plates and all this stuff. Of course, nothing's in the car. And you're sitting there going, we're going a little bit less than the speed limit. And we get trailed because we fit a profile. So imagine that happening to you every day. So another story. My son was in 10th grade. I was a team chaplain. We're playing this really good Catholic school. They were a machine. I knew we were going to lose. So I told him the story of David and Goliath. We're David, they're Goliath. And I had a slingshot as a symbol to remind him. So before the game, I got my slingshot on the field. We're David. We're going to slay the giant tonight. We go into the locker room. I make a right turn into the restroom. I put the slingshot in my back pocket, use the restroom, wash my hands, come out. And two white policemen are right there waiting for me. And they say, why do you have a weapon? Now, I think they're joking because I'm Derwin Gray. Everybody knows Derwin Gray. I play with the Panthers. I'm on the radio. I'm on TV. We, we have a well-known church. You know me. And so I'm laughing like, oh, man, I was just telling the story of David and Goliath. They're not smiling. Oh, and they're my. like, why do you have a weapon? What are you doing here with it? And all of a sudden, I'm transported back in time like I'm this little kid with no power. And I feel literally at the bottom of my feet all this anger rising like, mm. why? Like, why couldn't you just say, excuse me, sir, we have been notified that someone has something like a weapon. Mm. Um, could you allow us to see it? Or, hey, could you throw it away? Mm. Why not treat me like a human being? Like, why do you got to get in my face? I'm a grown, I pay taxes. I am friends literally with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. Like, I mentor him and speak into his life. But yet you're treating me like this. And I find myself getting angry. But then a white police officer, his nickname is Shrek. He's 6'5", 350 some pounds. And every time he sees me, he gives me a hug and a kiss. So he comes over, he gives me a hug and a kiss. And he senses the tension. He's like, is everything fine here? And the two police officers go, oh, 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 so this is your pastor? Well, yeah. Oh, okay. Everything's fine. You can, oh, man. You can, you can go now, sir. And so I'm walking away going... How many people don't have this privilege? Now, let me tell another story. I get pulled over by a white police officer in my neighborhood. He runs my plates. He takes my license and he comes up to me and he says, hey, sir, you have a perfect record driving. You know what? You were speeding, but we're going to keep your record perfect. Have a wonderful day. (laughs) Yeah. So 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 we have to not broad brush everything, but we also have to recognize There are some systemic issues. Why? Because the human heart is totally depraved and their systemic dark powers. So what do we do? Do we blame every police officer? Of course not. But do we try to reform the system? Of course we do. And Derwin, I've heard so many stories like that from my African-American and brown friends, people of color over the last year, not just about police, but just about, I was I was reading a, a book recently, it talked about Harvard admissions criteria, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, thank you for sharing all that. And you know, we, <laughs> you got me thinking before we started, we always chat a little bit and I, you know, you love to fish. I know that. And we were talking about fishing, right? And uh 
So I, I was, because I have a degree in history, I study this stuff. It's like, yeah, the fish were so plentiful in 17th century Canada that you could almost go from boat to boat, um, according to the explorers, stepping on their backs. Like there were just a lot more fish 400 years ago. So it wouldn't, and casually, as a friend, friend to friend, I'm like, wouldn't it be fun to time travel? You could go fishing then. And you said... I said, nah, that wouldn't be so good for me to go back to the 1700s to fish. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's another layer. Like, you know, and it just hit me, dude. It hit me because I could go back 400 years and yeah, I'd probably die in the wilderness with my makeup. But you know what I mean? Like there's, it's, 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 we're, we're in a privileged position. Well, 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 and Carrie, and this is what's so important. Notice what you said, friend to friend. Hmm. You and I have known each other for probably a decade. I respect you. I love you. I know you respect me. I know you love me. And so that's why in Ephesians 4.2, when Paul says the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity, he talks about Hmm. patience. He talks Hmm. about kindness. And so now You heard that story. The Holy Spirit awakened that in you to give you a different perspective. That's the beauty of diversity. God Mm -hmm. knew what he was doing when he said Jews and Gentiles become a new humanity in Christ. And God knew what he was doing when he didn't have Paul go around going, hey, we're going to make a a church for the rich Jews over here, the poor (laughs) Greeks over here. The No, he puts us all together in this salad bowl and his grace is the salad dressing so that we can mesh together. But it starts with us being patient and someone with your influence with that story, you can affect thousands, people who may, who may work in government and who, who, who may be in your youth group, who knows the promise of just that conversation, but it has to happen in community. And what happens is, is we're like ships passing in the night instead of friends having coffee, discussing our life's perspective within the story of God's grace in Christ. I think your vision, and I appreciate that, Derwin, you know, and I love your metaphor of salad rather than use a different one, blender, right? Because so many of us are like, we're all the same. It's like, we're not the same. We're different. We're diverse. And we honor each other and we submit to each other out of love for Christ. Uh, Because God has a beautiful biodiversity not just in nature, but in people. And um, I love your vision because it's a vision forward that really stretches back, right, to the first century. And if you can really look at the miracle of the first century church, which had its moments and we're having our moments, there's a lot of promise there. So I'd love for you to just wrap up with a final thought. Anything else you'd like to say? Well, uh, just as a gentle pushback, yeah, um, I am not smart enough with a to come up with a vision like this. Um, I believe with every fiber in me that this is God's heartbeat, that from all time and eternity, the father wanted a family, the son wanted a bride, the spirit wanted a dwelling place. And when God created his image bearers, he longed for community. When we broke that covenant, He refused to give up, and he called a man by the name of Abram. He says, Abram, I'm changing your name to Abraham. You're going to be a father of many. 
All of the nations are going to be a part of your family. It's going to be beautiful. And ultimately, through the story of Israel and to the Messiah, when Messiah Jesus comes, he's coming as a covenant keeper, promise fulfiller. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he incorporates us into himself as his body and his family. And he brings us together with all of our junk and all of our mess. And then he says, let me begin to teach you how to love. And so what I want to do is I just walk people through the compelling story of a Jewish nationalist Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus, one who goes from church persecutor to church prophet, one who goes from hunting down Christians to joining the company of the hunted, that the gospel is a bigger, more beautiful story, and I provide practices so that we can live this out. My hope and my prayer, Carrie, so as I get towards my 50th birthday on April 9th, my hope and my prayer is that this book would be read by thousands upon thousands upon thousands of leaders, but not only read, implemented, and engrafted so that, so that, People in Canada, people in America, people around the world, but specifically for the American context, which has struggled so much with this issue of sin that we're looking for an answer. And Jesus says, I have been here all along. My Mm -hmm. grace is sufficient. Love each other the way that I loved you. Tear down strong towers that divide. Let me reroot and rewire your heart. Let me do it. I can do it. I believe you can. Hmm. Wow. Really challenging uh, and inspiring at the same time. Derwin, the book is called Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Thank you so much for joining us again today on Church Pulse Weekly. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Wow, that was a uh, powerful and moving conversation with Derwin Gray. And uh, so glad to have you along, leaders, and really, really hope that this has helped you. Uh, we're all trying to figure it out in real time, right? And that's why Church Pulse Weekly exists. So we want to say thanks again to today's sponsor for this episode. Rusty George has a brand new book called A Simple Path to Following Jesus. It's a great resource for small groups and new believers in your church. If you want more, you can go to amazon.com or if you uh, want to buy them in bulk, head over to pastorrustygeorge.com forward slash shop, and you can get your copies in bulk today. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if this episode encouraged you, would you let us know? Share it on social. Uh, Maybe um, leave a rating and review. We would just absolutely love that. And we'll catch you next time on Church Pulse Weekly. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.